Well, let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn to uh, the book of Ruth, chapter number 2, as we continue our journey through Ruth. I had originally planned to preach chapter 2 this morning and preach chapter 3 next week, but uh, I'm preaching chapter 2 this morning, and then I'm preaching chapter 2 again next week uh, from a little bit different perspective. Uh, so that'll extend our Ruth study for about a week, but there's just so much in chapter 2 that is so wonderful that uh, uh, I could either try and preach a three-hour sermon in one Sunday morning setting or just preach two hour-and-a-half sermons over two Sundays, so I opted for the two hour-and-a-half sermons over two Sundays. Uh, that's a joke. You can laugh. A bad one. <laughs> start, start, start. No, no, yeah, nothing like starting a sermon off with a bad joke. But anyway, Ruth chapter 2, uh, let's read. As a matter of fact, let's jump back up to the last phrase of chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, And they, that's Naomi and Ruth, came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roast, roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and 
She had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, put out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman, the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. This week, while in the doctor's office, I read an article in Reader's Digest. The article was about a young college student by the name of Hunter Hare. He was 19. He had come in uh, on the weekend for a party. And on Saturday night, he and four of his friends, about 10 p.m., piled into his SUV. And they started to a house where a party was going on. And the party was located near their former high school at Lake Mary in Florida. But something went wrong. His GPS on his phone would not locate the house. He could not figure out where the house was at. And so he pulled in next to Lake Mary. And uh, he pulled into a a specific parking lot to see if the GPS on his SUV would, would find the address And as he was getting ready to punch in the address, one of his friends from the back seat leaned forward and said, there's a car out there in the water. And sure enough, the way the headlights were shining on the water, they could see off in the distance a vehicle. They could even make out a silhouette of the driver in the driver's seat. And they sat there for a minute, half scared, not knowing what to do, but they finally decided that they were going to jump in the water and swim out to try and save the man. He was about 50 to 75 yards offshore. The water was frigid, but uh, Hunter Hare and his friend, Zach Sawin, jumped in the water, swam out to the vehicle, and sure enough, they found the vehicle and a man by the name of Miguel Hernandez sitting behind the wheel, shocked, unable to move. They finally got his attention and got him to roll down the passenger side window. Hunter climbed in, unbuckled the buckle. The water was piling into the car quickly. And they were able to jerk him out, put them on their back, and swim back safely to the shore. He was saved in that moment. 
Well, the news of that story broke. Everyone was talking about the story. And they interviewed Hunter about the happenings there. And here's what he said in the interview. He said, the series of events that led us there were the craziest coincidences ever. We left my friend's house at a certain time, didn't have to stop at any red lights, and then we got lost. And if we had shown up 30 seconds later, he probably would have been dead. Now, Hunter Hare refers to this, this series of events as coincidences, just things that seem to happen. Now, my question is this. Webster says that the, uh, a coincidence is the occurrence of events that happen at the same time by accident but seem to have some connection. That's what a coincidence is. It is a series of events that happen at the same time by accident that seem to have connections. My questions are, was it an accident that Hunter Hare and his friends happened to come home that particular weekend? Was it an accident that they were going to a particular party? Was it an accident that they didn't run through any red lights, get stopped? Was it an accident that the GPS on his iPhone wouldn't work? Was it an accident that they pulled into that particular parking lot to punch in an address on his SUV's GPS? And was it an accident that they spotted the vehicle off in the distance? And get this, was it an accident that Hare and his friend Solwyn were athletic guys strong enough to swim back to shore with a man in shock on their back? Was that an accident? Well, the world would say that's exactly what it was. It was just a coincidence. All, of this, all that happened was just random events that seemed to go together. It was an accident. But when you look at Scripture and you read of the God of the Bible and you believe Scripture, here's what you have to conclude. That nothing, nothing occurs by coincidence. But everything occurs by the providence of a sovereign God. This means that the smallest details, the smallest decisions, the smallest events in life are not left up to accidental timing. They are not random events that just seem to go together. No. But they are part of a sovereign God's plan who is working all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, if there is any chapter in the Bible, which all chapters in the Bible point to this, but if it is highlighted in any chapter in the Bible, it is highlighted here in Ruth 2 about the providence of Almighty God working in some of the most mundane, some of the smallest decisions that go on in our life. Charles Spurgeon once said that even the dust mites that you see on those days when the sun shines through the window blinds and you see those little particles of dust floating around, he says even those particles are floating around by the providence and the sovereignty of God. He leaves nothing to chance. Ruth 2 highlights that because some people would read Ruth 2 and they would say, oh, what luck that everything works out the way they, they do here in Ruth 2. But for us, 
We read Ruth too. We see a God who is ordering and orchestrating. We see a God who is planning and purposing. And we see a God who is working out his sovereign will in our lives. Now, this should not lead us to some type of dark fatalism to where we just say, well, nothing really matters in life. Uh, What will be, will be, so who cares? That's not the point. No, the point is, even in those small, mundane areas of life that we think aren't important, Ruth 2 shows us that God is at work in those areas. And so instead of giving us a dark fatalism, looking at life this way causes us to have confidence in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tragedies, because they let us know that even when things seem accidental, they're actually providential. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to work through this chapter, and I want us to, bank, uh, to build confidence in God when apparent accidents take place in our life. I use the word apparent specifically because there are no such things as accidents, but some things do seem coincidental. Some things do seem accidental. So how should we respond in life when apparent accidents take place? Well, to build our confidence, the first thing I want you to see is that in the midst of apparent accidents, you can be confident that God is working in you. God is working in you. Now, at the end of chapter one, Naomi and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem from the land of Moab. And when they make it back to Bethlehem, all still not hunky or dory, hunky and dory. Their future still looks gloomy. They're still husbandless. They're penniless. And they are still hopeless. That's a recipe for disaster. They are hungry. They're facing starvation. But yet a beacon of light seems to shine in when you come to chapter 2 because we are introduced to chapter 2 to a man we haven't seen before. Verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. God works through people we will meet. Listen, here in verse 1, we are introduced to Boaz. And I love the way the author does this. He builds the tension. He doesn't say, and there was Boaz living in Bethlehem, and here's what he's like. No, he starts off by describing Boaz first. He's a relative of Elimelech. He is a worthy man. That means he was a man of a good reputation. He was an honorable man. He was a man of prominent stature. Ladies, he was a man that you would love for your daughter to bring home on a Friday night and say, this is my boyfriend or father's. You would even be happy if that's possible. If your daughter said, I've been asked to be wed. (laughs) Boaz has asked me for his hand in marriage. If that's possible that a dad's happy for that, Boaz is your guy. I mean, he is a man's man. Dads, he was a guy that you could take your son and say, look at him. Be like Boaz. And he shows up on the scene. His name means in him is strength. Even his name points to the power of Almighty God. And yet, here's what I love. Before Boaz ever meets Ruth, before Ruth ever meets Boaz, 
we are introduced to both of them. And we see here in this passage that God knows them both and he is working about to make sure their paths cross to complete his plan. And so although they haven't met yet, they're going to meet. And God is going to work in Ruth through this encounter. But we also see that God works through steps that we will take. Now in verses 2 and 3, Naomi and Ruth's got some options. All right. They're hungry, so they could starve to death, uh, or they could possibly go into prostitution and try and survive, which a lot of women were forced to in that day and time, or they could go off and work, because at the end of, verse two, or end of chapter 1, verse 22, it said they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So immediately we see here that God is already at work on their behalf, and here's why. In the Old Testament, God had made a provision for the poor, the widows, and the orphans, and the strangers. That when God's people harvested their fields, they could not harvest the entire field. As a matter of fact, Leviticus 19 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Deuteronomy 24 says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So get this. God had told his people, when you harvest your field, here's the way you do it. You don't, you're not hoggish about it, so you're not going to harvest everything. Leave the edges. Leave the corners. Leave that on the edges for other people to come in and take. Secondly, you're not going to do a, a second sweep. When you, when you glean the field once, you go on to another field. If you leave something behind, don't get it. And furthermore, if you gather up something and you drop it on the ground, you don't bend back over and pick it up. You leave it. Who do you leave it for? You leave it for the strangers. You leave it for the fatherless. You leave it for the widows to come in behind you and gather it up. It's for them. So there is a beacon of hope. And God commanded his people to have this grace and compassion on the strangers, the fatherless, the widows, and, and the orphans. He commanded them to do that as a reminder to them of their former slavery in Egypt. You were a stranger in a foreign land. You were an outcast in a foreign land. So don't forget that. I love the sojourner is what God is saying through that. So now they arrive in Bethlehem at the right time. There's a little bit of hope. Ruth decides, I'm going to go work. She asked Naomi for permission to go work. Naomi says, yes, go ahead, go work. She doesn't go with her. She could go. She's a widow as well. I don't know if she's too old not to work. Or if or she's too old to work or if she's just too distraught and too upset to work. But she tells her, go on, you've got my blessing. And Ruth leaves that morning and she goes out to find a field. And do you know whose field she winds up in? She takes a right turn at the end of Main Street. And she ends up in a field owned by none other than Boaz. Here's my question. I don't know, scripture doesn't say, but I can't help but wonder, how many fields did she pass by on her way to Boaz's? 
How many other fields were people out gleaning the crops and she walked by one, to walked by another one, and then she came to this particular field and she thought, hmm, this one looks pretty good. I think I'll stop here and work a while. And so she does. Listen, it just looks like a random happenstance. It just looks like a coincidence. She ends up in this field, but make no mistake about it. Decisions as small as which field to glean are under the providential care of Almighty God. You may think that you don't have many tough decisions to make this week or any uh, decisions to make that will actually count much. But the fact is, even our smallest decisions that we make are those that are going to be working in the hand of God and in the plan of God to bring about His purposes. So know this, that, <clears throat> that in the midst of apparent accidents, God is at work in you, even though you may not know it. But secondly, know this, that God is working for you. Not just in you, but for you. Now, Ruth goes into the field, and Ruth working in the field could be very dangerous. From all indications from Scripture, Ruth was a good-looking lady. She was a beautiful woman. And so for a beautiful woman to be alone in this society could be the recipe for disaster. Uh, she's not got a man to protect her. She's alone. She's not in a crowd of uh, an accompaniment of women. She's by herself. So to put it, to put it uh, uh, plainly, she's vulnerable. And so she enters into this field, very vulnerable. But we know this from Ruth, chapter 1. She is trusting in God. She is trusting in the Lord. She's renounced her devotion to Chemosh, and she is following the Lord. Remember what she said to Naomi? Your God will be my God. And what she does for us is she shows us a picture of what God does for those who place their trust, who place their faith in him. For instance, she shows us that God will protect those who trust in him. In verse 4, as she is in the field working her way, all of a sudden Boaz shows up. Boaz shows up in the field, and notice how he speaks to his servants. He shows up, and the first thing he says to his servants, the Lord be with you. The first thing he does is pronounce a blessing on his workers. How do his workers respond to him? The Lord bless you. How would you like to start a Monday off like that at the workplace? Your boss comes in, speaks a blessing over you. You speak a blessing over him. Everybody's blessing everybody else there. And, 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 and folks are thinking, did I come to work or did I go to church? What's going on here? Well, Boaz would have been a great man to work for. But as he's blessed, everybody's blessing everybody else, something catches Boaz's eye. He looks and he sees Ruth. And Boaz says, hmm, whose young woman is this? Who is this out here working? And then his foreman comes up to him and he says, oh, that's, that, that's Ruth. Oh, and by the way, she's a Moabite woman. Now, I don't know if there was a hint of racism under his voice or not, but I do know this. Israelites and Moabites didn't get along well. Israelites looked down at Moabites because God had said, no Moabites ever going to enter the generation of my people. Never. Don't do it. And so he says, this is the Moabite woman. And immediately you would think that would turn people off. But it doesn't. 
Because in verse 7, the foreman starts to describe the actions of Ruth to Boaz. And if her beauty caught his eye, her actions won his affection. Because the foreman describes what she had done. He said, one, in verse 7, this is how she responded. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. She comes. She's polite. She asked for permission to work. And he said, so she came, and get this, she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The foreman's saying, I want you to know something about her. She's a hard-working woman. She's been here all day. She's worked all day, and she's just had a little bit of a rest. Just as Boaz is a model for young men to follow, so too Ruth becomes a model for young women. She is the embodiment of a Proverbs 31 lady. And so she works all day. And I love this in verse 8. He sees what she's doing, and then comes the encounter, the first words, Boaz to Ruth. Now, you would think that this was going to be something marvelous, something great and grand. He comes up to her, and here's his first words. Now, listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. That's interesting. My first words to Shelly were, hey, (laughs) how you doing? (laughs) Joey from Friends, I knew. And her first words to me were, it's cold in here. (laughs) That was her first words. Uh, Boaz's first words to Ruth were words of protection. He's going to protect her because look what else he says. Basically what he says, don't go anywhere else. You don't have to go anywhere else to glean. You stay in my fields, all right? Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Stay with the women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Basically, it is a dream come true. What's going on? He's saying this, your vulnerability's gone. You don't have to worry about being alone. There's other women out here working. You stay with them so you won't be by yourself isolated. Matter of fact, listen, you don't have to go to any other fields. I own enough fields around here. I can keep you busy for a long time. And we're going to see a little bit later. It takes a long time to glean all that Boaz has. And so, and so what's he doing? He's saying, you stay here under my protection. I'll watch out for you. I will care for you. And God will protect those who trust in him. Do you think Ruth got up that morning and she said, you know what? I'm going to go out here to work. And God's going to make sure that I'm not going to be harmed. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm not going to be uh, upset. Nobody's going to take advantage of me. No, she got up and said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to work because that beats starving to death. But as she was doing what she was supposed to do, God behind the scenes is taking care of her, protecting her. But not only do we see that God protects those who trust in him, but secondly, we see that God promotes those who live for him. Look in verses 10 through 13. Notice Ruth's response to Boaz. She fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She gets it. She knows he shouldn't care about her. But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's what he's saying. Ruth, I've heard about you. 
They've told me about your story. I know that you forsook all. I know that you, you, you came with Naomi. You came back here. And Boaz is blown away by her devotion. But my question is, what caused Ruth to act the way she acted? Ruth says, you're being gracious to me. Grace means I don't deserve it. It sounds as if Boaz is saying, I'm just giving you what you deserve. You've earned this. But it wasn't Ruth who earned this. It was her faith in God that produced the loyalty that caused her to do this. Because you know, of all the things that Boaz could say about Ruth, what was so great about her leaving their father's country, coming with Naomi, being devoted to her the last thing he says about her is the key. He says, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Watch this. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What's Boaz saying? Boaz is saying this. Ruth, I know you believe in the God we believe in. I know you trust in Yahweh. I know you trust in Jehovah. I know. I know that you've done what you are doing. Because of the faith that is in your heart. Her faith was evident. And I love the description because it's a beautiful description of what true faith is. That she had come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now, when I grew up, my mama and papa, my papa buddy had chickens all over the place. Uh, you know, we didn't have to look from, we didn't have to, my, I started to say we didn't have to look to make bases when we played baseball because there were bases spread out throughout all the field, if you get my drift. But he had chickens. And, and I'll never forget the image of a storm blowing in time after time after time. Little biddies would be running around all over the place. And about the time the storm would start to hit, that, that, that mother hen would cry out. She'd spread open her wings, and those little, those little biddies would just take off in a dead run. They'd get under her wings, and she'd cover them up. And uh, she would endure the storm for them. Well, that's the image that Boaz draws of Ruth's faith. That her faith is like that little chick that is running underneath the wings of that mother hen. And really, isn't that what faith is? Faith isn't me and Jesus have our own thing going or me and Jesus are going to work this thing out. No, faith is I'm making a dash under his wings. I'm running to him because my life is dependent upon him. I need him. I'm depending on him. And that's what Ruth is doing here. And by that, God Boaz sees her faith in God, sees her trust in God, and thus he, he promotes her in the sense that she doesn't have to go anywhere else. She doesn't have to look anywhere else. He will take care of her. But then we also see, thirdly, that God will provide for those who rely on him. Now, she comes out looking for what? She comes out just looking for enough to survive. But boy, does she get a surprise because, Ruth, because Boaz is going to absolutely lay provisions on her like she could not even imagine. Notice verse 14. He's going to provide personally for her. Look, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, this is the first date, by the way, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Now, their date is a little bit different than mine and Shelley's first date. 
uh, I was preaching a revival on our first date, and I thought, you know, I better impress her. So we went somewhere fancy after the revival to eat on our first date together. I took her to the Waffle House. And, uh, yeah. She ordered a grilled cheese and fries. I ordered the number two and the number five. I figured she might as well know what she's getting into. And unlike Ruth, there was nothing left over because I ate mine and then I ate hers. (laughs) But it was the first date, and it was memorable. Well, get this. Ruth is now dipping her morsel in sweet wine. She's eating roasted grain. And for the first time in a long time, her belly's not growling with hunger. And she's looking, and there's food left over. And Boaz says, bring her a to-go box. Let her pack it up and take it with her. And so what we find, he's providing personally for her. But it gets better. He also ends up providing secretly for her as well. Because imagine Ruth gathering all of her food together and and getting back out into the field. Boaz hollers at some of his men and says, come here, fellas. And they come over to Boaz. And he looks at them and look what he says in verse number 15. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Uh, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. In other words, he's saying, when she goes out there, push her on in the field a little bit to the heart of the crop. She doesn't have to stay around the edges. She can go in where the good stuff's at and she can go glean in there. And, and, And another thing, put out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. You remember what God said in his law? If you're harvesting and you drop something on the ground what you can't do you can't pick it up you have to leave it so so Boaz specifically positions his men out in front of Ruth and they're gleaning and she's working her heart out they're gleaning and they're throwing things on the ground they're just gleaning and throwing things on the ground and, and Ruth just happens to be in the role with the clumsy worker she thinks <laughs> I'm following this guy he can't hold on to anything and I'm I'm racking up here but what's going on She has no idea what Boaz has said. And yet Boaz is lavishing provision upon her and she doesn't even know it. Let me ask you something. How many times has God done that with us? How many times has he provided us with what we needed and we didn't even recognize what was going on. Someone who gives us an encouraging word. Someone who helps us financially. Someone who is an answer to prayer and and we would have never dreamed it. But what an encouragement is to know that when we are in the fields of life, we have a redeemer who is looking over, who is watching over us And he has our need in his heart and in his mind. And he has provided for us in ways that one, we could never describe. And two, we may never, ever know about. Ruth doesn't know what Boaz is doing here. But all she knows is that she's racking up. And Boaz, can't you just just see him standing back and watching and smiling? What's going on? Well, but get this. He also ends up in verse 17... Providing for her abundantly. I mean abundantly. Look what happens. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Now this is after lunch till evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. She she took the harvest. She beat it out. Got it ready to use. And it was about an ephah of barley. Now this is amazing. 
because an ephah of barley was about 22 liters. All right? That's about 5.8 gallons of barley. It weighed somewhere between 35 and 50 pounds. Furthermore, it, it's estimated that uh, you needed about one liter of barley to survive a day. That's about what the household needs was, one liter of barley a day. Well, she comes to work for one day, and she leaves with three weeks worth of food. Now, let that just sink in. What's going on here? Well, Boaz has abundantly supplied her need. Ruth had no idea what was going on. But while she had no idea what was going on, God was working for her. Now, listen to me. Even in your difficult circumstances, and sometimes it may feel as if God is working against you, if you are His and you trust in Him, even your difficulties in life are being used by God to work on your behalf and work for you. They work for you. So, no, God is working for you. And then thirdly, we see that in our apparent accidents, God is working through you. Now, this is where the story takes an interesting turn because she stands. Uh, this event stands as a remarkable testimony of Ruth's character. Get this. She's tired. She's worn out. She's worked all day. And yet she is going to be used by God to touch the heart of her mother-in-law. You remember the last time we saw Naomi? She wasn't a pleasant person, pun intended. Naomi means pleasantness. You remember what she told the ladies of Bethlehem to call her? Don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Well, now for the first time in the book of Ruth, we're going to see that her life also makes a drastic, takes a drastic change for the better. And it's all because of what Ruth does for her. It's because Ruth is used by God to touch the bitterness and the blackness of Naomi. So what does Ruth show us? Well, Ruth tells us that we must be generous with God's goodness. Look in verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Now get this. She's packing 50 pounds of grain back to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Imagine that. Naomi expects her to come back with milk and bread. Yeah. She comes back with three weeks worth of groceries and leftovers from Malone's. <laughs> and she says, have at it. Enjoy it. And Naomi's thinking, where in the world did this come from? Whose field did you work in? I don't know the guy's name, but may the Lord bless him, whenever, whoever he is. And then she hears something that changes her life. Her frown leaves and is replaced with a smile. Her pain's replaced with a promise. Her heartache is replaced with hope. Her despair's replaced with delight. And her hopelessness has now been replaced with hope because she hears Ruth say, Oh, just some guy. His name's Boaz, I think. <laughs> Boaz was his name. Immediately, immediately, Naomi knows what this means. 
It says in verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. What does this mean? Well, their culture was different than our culture is. But in their culture, a redeemer, someone who would purchase back, buy back, uh, was a close relative, a close blood relative of someone who had a particular responsibility. If a family member got in a difficult situation financially and had to sell their land, a redeemer, a close blood relative, could purchase that land back on behalf of that relative, and at the year of Jubilee, the land would go back to its original owner. Um, also, if a family member was in a bad financial situation and they sold themselves into slavery, then the redeemer, the goel, as the Hebrew word is called, the near kinsman, the close relative, could buy that family member out of slavery and give them their freedom. Also, if, you, if, a, if a person had been murdered in cold blood, then the goel, the kinsman, the redeemer, would then become what was called the avenger of blood, which meant they could hunt down the murderer, kill them in cold blood at town square, and there would be no price, no penalty to be paid for that. But in Ruth's case, in Naomi's case, in Elimelech's case, the redeemer was also the person who would uh, raise up family in the name of the dead person through the leveret marriage. Leveret is a Latin term which means brother-in-law. Long story short, if a person married another person and the man died without children being born, okay, then that man's near relative would marry the widow, have a child, and that child would then carry on the dead relative's name so his name would continue on. Well, that's what's going on here because Elimelech has no one left. His name's not going on. His two sons are dead. Naomi's past the childbearing age, and so Ruth's what's left. And so when Naomi hears this, she immediately starts hearing wedding bells going off. She immediately knows this is the answer to their problem. Boaz can marry Ruth and redeem all that was Elimelech's, buy it all back, and we can be redeemed. We've got hope now. And she sees this. Why does she see this? She sees this because Ruth is willing to share with her what she's got. You know what? If Ruth had been a Baptist, she would have said, hey, don't you touch my food. Hey, I worked all day with that while you were sitting there soaking and souring and being all depressed. You want my Malone's? No way you're getting my leftovers. I'm warming them up a little bit later. No. She comes in and she says, here, eat it all. Look here what the Lord has done for us. She shared it. Listen to me. You know why God blesses us? He blesses us that we might be a blessing to someone else. Do you know some Naomi's in your life? Let's be honest. When we're around Naomi's who want to be called Mara, what's the easiest thing for us to do? It's to withdraw. To say, you know what? You want to be a bitter person your whole life? Go ahead and be bitter. You can be bitter by yourself. Be alone. Go ahead. Do that. Yeah. But what's Ruth do? Ruth says, it don't matter. You're not getting rid of me. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'm going to die. 
Matter of fact, I'm going to be buried beside of you, so you're not even going to get rid of me in death. I'm staying. And now when God starts blessing Ruth, Ruth doesn't see them as just God blessing her by herself. No, God blesses Ruth, and Ruth sees that as an opportunity to bless Naomi. And now, because she uses what God has blessed her with, Naomi's changing. She's speaking blessing now. She is being gracious now. She's asking the Lord to bless people now. Listen, there will be times in your life you're going to be Naomi, and you're going to need a Ruth to stand by you, to encourage you, and to lift you up. But then there are going to be times you need to be a Ruth to someone else. Don't, don't withdraw. Don't say, I'm done. Don't wash your hands. No. Share the grain that God has given to you in order to lift up someone else. Life is not about you alone. So be generous with God's goodness. But secondly, and this is the hard part, be patient with God's plan. I mean, immediately after this is going on, Naomi, like a good nosy mother-in-law, says, uh, what else happened today? Give me the details of what's going on. And uh, Ruth says, well, he did tell me to do something. He, he did tell me not to go into any other fields to stay with his women and to just glean his fields. And Naomi says, hmm, that's good. Do whatever he tells you to do. That, that, that's her advice. Now she's Miss Matchmaker, and she's saying, yeah, Here's what you do. Do exactly what Boaz tells you to do. That's pretty good advice. And then, watch this. Verse 22 says, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, I would think, verse 22 would say, and so they married and lived happily ever after. But it doesn't. As a matter of fact, there's another time marker there. How long did she work in his fields? Until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Now, we know she started working at the beginning of the barley harvest, which takes place between March and April. And she worked all the way through to the end of the wheat harvest, which was June to July. So get this. She works for five months in his fields. And we don't read about a second date. We don't read about a proposal. We don't read about anything like that. You know what? We don't even read anything about those five months. But just that she worked. She goes every day. You know, and if, if you ladies know it as well, she got up every day and thought, boy, I, I wonder what Boaz is doing today. And she goes out and she just works. Doesn't hear from him. Doesn't see him. Where's he at? What's going on? But you know what? She continued doing what she was supposed to do. Work the field. Work the field. Things seem to plateau here. For five months, nothing exciting happens. But what does Ruth do? She continues doing what she's supposed to do. And you know, Adrian Rogers said this, men worry about time. God is only concerned about timing. Let me say that again. Men worry about time. But God is only concerned about timing. And timing is everything. Have you ever been impatient with God's plan? <laughs> That's a crazy question. If you've, if you've been living for the Lord long, you know what it's like to be in the midst of something, to be going through struggles and want to be out of it and out of it now. I often said that when I pray for patience, here are how I pray for it. God, give me patience and give it now. I mean, that's, 
That's the way I pray for patience. <laughs> patience doesn't come that way, does it? Patience comes over time. Romans 5. How does it come? Faith works patience. Patience, endurance. Endurance, or trials works patience. And patience, endurance, and endurance, hope. And hope makes you not ashamed. Patience is produced when you have to trust God over an extended period of time through difficulties and in the midst of situations you don't know what's going on, but yet you trust God. That's how patience is developed. Patience is basically me saying, I have no idea what's going on, but I trust the one who knows it all. And that's what's going on with Ruth. Listen, small things, small decisions are everything with God's plan. It was, a, uh, it was a snowy January morning. As a matter of fact, January of 1850, January 6th. It was a blizzard, a snowstorm that had hit town. And a 15-year-old man, a young boy decided to go to church. Of all days, he decided to go to church. He gets up. He has to walk to church. And because he has to walk to church, he doesn't get to go to the church he was going to go to. He walks into the very first church he comes to, which happens to be the primitive Methodist church at the end of the road. And when he walks into that church, something amazing happens. I'll let him tell you in his own words. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. And a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 54, 22. He not, did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look, and you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then he says, look unto me. Ah, he said, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll, find, you'll not, never find comfort in yourselves. Then the man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. And when he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he, he was at the length of his tether. <laughs> then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. 
But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made about my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. And he continued. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. If you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. The 15-year-old that morning was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. Now think about this. Was it just by chance he wanted to go to church that morning? No. Was it just by chance the church he had wanted to go to? He wasn't able to get there because of a snowstorm? No. Was it by chance that the preacher wasn't even able to make it? And that some tailor stood up and that the only thing he could do was quote Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Is that by chance? The answer is no, not at all. When you look at how God worked in your life to bring you to a point of salvation. Was that by chance? It wasn't chance that I was reared and raised in a home that taught me about Jesus. It wasn't by chance that, that, that I'd been to church over and over again. And it wasn't by chance I came to church that night and heard the gospel preached to me. Let me say this. It's not by chance you're here either. Just as Ruth passed by so many different fields to get to Boaz's, I wonder how many churches did you drive by to get here this morning now? How many places of worship could you have pulled in, but yet you are at this one? Now, how many different circumstances in your life seem to just be coincidentally falling into place to bring you here to this point, to this moment in life, and you might say, it's just coincidence. No. No, it's not. It's providence, beloved. This date, this time, this hour was marked out by God in eternity past. And so as we gather here today, everything that has brought you to this point has brought you here in this field so that you might meet Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Redeemer. It's not by chance. It's not coincidence. It's providence this morning. And I promise you today that what you find in this field far supersedes anything Ruth found in Boaz's field. You find mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness and goodness and eternal life. All of that found in one place and that is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything in your life has been used by God to bring you to this bottleneck. And so Today, today, now, at this moment, in this hour, I urge you to do what Ruth did. I urge you to put your trust under his wings, to believe and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what that Taylor told Spurgeon, to look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And so today, I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you 
to look. And I'm going to ask you to be saved today. Now, let's pray.